Well, take your Bible this morning and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Last week, I began a short series called The Vanishing of Sin. And we spent some time looking at verses 25 through 28. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 29 through 31. And let me remind you of something as you're turning there. Everything that we have talked about is only possible as we obey Ephesians 5.18. So just flip over one more chapter. Look at verse 18. And it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So the filling of the Spirit is what makes this possible. We cannot deal with the old man on our own. And if you'll notice there in chapter 4, he has talked about this old man. And when he refers to it, he's telling these Ephesian believers not to walk as they used to walk. Don't live the way you used to live. You're a different person now. In fact, look at verse 22. He says that in reference to your former manner of life. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We are new people. As I said last week, we're people of the book, we're people of truth, and that should be what utters from our lips. Not lying, not falsehood, not being angry and sinning, not stealing, but sharing. All of those things are part of the old self. Lying is part of the old self, anger is part of the old self, stealing is part of the old self. And now he mentions some other ones, verse 29, unwholesome words which grieve the Holy Spirit, verse 30, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. That's all part of the old self. That's the old man. Verse 32, the new man is being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And being imitators of God as beloved children and walking in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. But then he shifts back to the old man again in verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must not be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting. But what? Giving of thanks. So if you're one who gives yourself over to the old man, you've got a danger there in verse 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. If that's what marks your life, that's the old person. That's the former manner of life that he mentioned in verse 22 that you have to lay aside. And the idea we talked about last week of laying it aside, this is a once and for all. When you come to Christ... You lay aside the old man. He is now dead. And you have to reckon him to be dead. But you also have to put on the new self. 
the new man. And as I said, Ephesians 5.18 is the key. You have to walk by the Spirit. Or to put it in the words of Galatians 5.16, you have to walk by the Spirit. Put it in the words of Colossians 3.16, you have to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, you have to be controlled by the Word of God. But unfortunately, sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes something happens that may trigger the old man. Now, I'll tell you right now, the old man wants to resurrect all the time. And in those moments when you're not paying attention, it catches you off guard. Sometimes you have a response to a situation that is reflecting the old man, the former manner of life. And when you come away from that, realizing that you gave in to the flesh, you now are dealing with shame and guilt because you've sinned. And you've sinned not only against one another, but you've sinned against God. So we have to guard ourselves, right? We always have to be on guard. And if you purpose every single day, every moment of the day, to walk by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit... In fact, in the Greek, it reads it this way, be being kept filled with the Spirit. And if you're doing that, then you're not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. You're not going to give in to the old man. The old man, you will have him crucified constantly by as you walk in the Spirit. Now, that might sound easy to do on paper, but I guarantee you it's not easy, right? And some of you may have fought with the old man this morning. Some of you may have fought with the old man yesterday or last night or sometime during this week. But I guarantee you he keeps wanting to resurrect. He keeps wanting to show his ugly head. And many things that we blame on Satan are really the old man. We don't really need any external help from the enemy of God. Uh, We've got this under control in the sense that we have this fallen sin, this part of Adam, this flesh that we drag around with us, this corpse, if you will, and that alone is enough to bring us down. And I know Satan comes along and he offers some external temptation, and it appeals to that former manner of life, and again, you have to put it to death. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is by Being filled with the Spirit, walking by the means of the Spirit. And as I said, He is so key to everything in our life as believers. And as I said, unfortunately, sometimes it hits uh, even some of the most popular people that we know in the church. I was reading an article yesterday. In fact, I was reminded of this article, and I pulled it back up. And uh, I want to read some of it to you. It dates back in 2009. You say, well, that was a long time ago. But let me tell you some highlights of this article and you see why it's significant. In 2009, the New York Times had featured a controversial Seattle pastor who had generated a new wave of debate and vulgarity in the pulpit. I know you've heard me refer to him as the cussing pastor. Yeah, unfortunately, he earned that title. The article says that he repented, starting with a public apology for having become known for good theology, a bad temper, and a foul mouth. 
You already hear some problems with this? A pastor with a foul mouth. That's inconsistent. I'll just go even further. A Christian with a foul mouth. That's inconsistent. And of course, he said, this is not what I want to be known for. And he had expressed that regret actually in 2008 when he was speaking at a Desiring God conference with John Piper. And he said this, I have sinned a lot. I have said things I totally regret. I have crossed the line. I've gone too far. I'm deeply convicted over sin in my past. I'm being sanctified by the grace of God. And what I have said will live with me forever. And I'm deeply sorrowful to Jesus. And this message for me is incredibly painful because it hits on one of the great weaknesses in my ministry and some of the greatest failures of my life. Any of us could have written something like that. But as noted in the 2009 article, which was a year later, the problem with his confession was actually short-lived and apparently not genuine. The pastor I'm referring to is Mark Driscoll. In August of 2014, the board of the Acts 29 network, which he started, which plants churches, they actually expelled him and his church, Mars Hill Church, from membership on the grounds of ungodly and disqualifying behavior. Two months later, he resigned as lead pastor of Mars Hill Church. But two years later, in 2016, he founded the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, but his ungodly behavior continued. In fact, more than 40 elders who served with Driscoll during the final years of Mars Hill Church, by the way, is completely out of existence now, they publicly have called for him to step down from his current pastoral position and seek reconciliation with those he's hurt. And here's what they wrote. We are troubled that he continues to be unrepentant, despite the fact that these sins have been previously investigated, verified, and brought to his attention by his fellow elders prior to his abrupt resignation from Mars Hill. Accordingly, we believe that Mark is presently unfit for serving the church in the office of pastor. Now, my question was, did he give heed to the advice of his former elders? Uh, no, he didn't. Did he repent? Unfortunately not. He is still pastoring that church today and still continuing in the same type of behavior. Now, beloved, that should not be true of any pastor, and I will even go further than that. It shouldn't be true of any Christian. We shouldn't be known for foul mouths, you know? That shouldn't be coming from our lips. Never. I understand that we may fall. I understand that. <clears throat> you know, my, my, life, <clears throat> my life before Christ, I had a foul mouth. And I had a lot of other things that was going on too. And I thought it was very interesting that the Lord left me in my current job to clean up my foul mouth. And my current job at the time was working on a loading dock with truckers who also had foul mouths. <laughs> 
we've heard the little uh, statement, you know, that speak like a trucker. In fact, it even goes off into uh, military as well, sound like a sailor. But again, even though we have these little stereotypes, this is what characterizes many, many professing Christians. We go on Facebook, we see it. We see it from people we know on Facebook that we're friends with. And it's unfortunate. It should not be that. We should not talk that way. And I believe the passage in front of us, which is the reason why I share the story, talks about this. Now, I highlighted it just a moment ago, but now let me read it. And it starts there in verse 29. It says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor, or anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. See, there's no place for vulgar language out of the mouth of a Christian, period. Whether it's in the pulpit or any other place. We shouldn't talk like this. We are new people. And as new people, we have a new walk. We have a new life. And that also affects our mouth. In fact, I would use the words of the Proverbs that if you can't speak something that's beneficial for others... Put a muzzle over your mouth. So here in verses 29 and 30, Paul mentions sins that have to do with our speech. In verses 30 and 31, we see those sins that affect our attitude. All of these must be dealt with in a serious manner. They can't be treated lightly because all sin is against God. And we also need to understand, because we have this flesh, as I mentioned a moment ago, sin is always present as long as we are in the world. You will never come to any place in this life where you eradicate sin from your life. But I will say, as you grow in Christ, sin should be decreasing, not increasing. So first we need to understand this. John Owen says this, Some have wrongly and foolishly believed that we are able in this life to keep the commands of God perfectly and are holy and perfectly dead to sin. Through ignorance of the true life in Christ and His power in believers, they have invented a new righteousness that is not in the gospel. They are vainly puffed up by their fleshly minds. Indwelling sin continues to live in believers in some measure and degree while we are in this world. We should not speak as though we had already attained or were already perfect. Now, you may not have run into people like this. I actually have run into people like this when I was in seminary. Of Some people that say that they've arrived and that they don't even sin anymore. In fact, even the false teacher Joyce Myers says she hadn't sinned in a long, 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 long time. And I would just have really trouble making a statement like that, you know, because the very moment I make it, then I'm going to fall. You know, we're told in Scripture to take heed where you stand lest you fall which tells me right there that we all have the potential of falling. Again, the reason why, not just external things that influence us, 
but we have this flesh that we still have to deal with. And if that wasn't the case, then you wouldn't be reading in any of the epistles about dealing with things like this and telling us that the only remedy that we have to deal with sin in our life is to put it to death by the power of the Spirit of God. And that's why I said just a moment ago that the Spirit of God is key to everything about our Christian life. Second, we must also understand that sin is still acting and laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. Again, John Owen says, when sin lets us along, we may let sin along. But sin is always active when it seems to be the most quiet. And its waters are often deep when they are calm. Oh, how true that is. But again, it's the Holy Spirit who aids us in opposing sin and lust, as Romans 8.13 tells us. He says that you have to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. That's the only way you're going to deal with it. It's only by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. But the flesh would have us to believe otherwise. One more quote from John Owen. He says, Sin sets its strength against every act of holiness and every degree of spiritual growth. We will not be making progress in holiness without walking over the bellies of our lust. He who does not kill sin along the way is making no progress in his journey. So as we look at verses 29 to 31 this morning, I don't want any of us to be fooled into thinking that we have arrived at dealing with sin or that these things we commit are not serious because all sin is serious, but not all see that. That's why no one is talking about it today like they used to. That's why we're seeing the vanishing of it, even though our culture has embraced it so much. And even the church has. There was a day when you only had little pockets of churches that were involved in homosexuality or ordaining women, pastors, or things like that, and being caught up in feminism and things like that. But now it is all over the place. The church is no longer this place that is separate from the world and marked by godliness and holiness Instead, we've embraced sin, and we've embraced the culture, and we have watered down the gospel. And I'll tell you right now, all the churches that have done that are under the anathema of Galatians chapter 1. They're preaching a different gospel. I know, beloved, we're small in number. But that's not the issue. There are churches that are small in number, they're doing the same thing, and they're dead churches. And they need to close. And then there are churches that are large that are dead churches. And it'd be good if they closed too. Because if we're going to compromise on the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're going to water it down, we've got huge issues here. We're not the church of Jesus Christ. We are not carrying out that great commission that he has called us to do. Beloved, God has called us to two main things. Preach the gospel to every single person. And number two, be holy. 
Because if you're not being holy as you preach the gospel, which my guess is if you're not being holy, you're not going to preach the gospel. But let's just say you're preaching the gospel and you're not living a holy life. You're undermining everything you're saying. How can you talk about sin when you're living in it? My guess is that most people won't talk about it when they're living in it. It's too uncomfortable. It's too convicting. So they, like I said last week, we find new terminology. We don't call things like adultery. We call it affairs. We don't call something or someone as a liar because they're lying. No, we say they've committed fraud. And we just kind of soften the terminology. But the Bible has never done that. It's never softened the terminology. Sin is still sin. And sin is still dangerous to all of us. And if we're going to have, maintain a, a godly testimony in an ungodly world, we have to be holy as He is holy. He is our standard of righteousness. And we now have the righteousness of Christ by which we are clothed in. And as I remind you again, we don't walk in reference to the manner of our former life. We are now laying that aside... And we're being renewed in the spirit of our mind. And we're putting on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So to do that, we have to deal with laying aside these sins. And it should be once and for all, as I said. Laying aside is used in the aorist tense, which means it's a once and for all decision and choice and action that you have made to be done with this old man, to be done with that part of your life. And as I said, he mentions what they are, and we looked at last week, lying and unrighteous anger, and we looked at stealing, and today we're looking at unwholesome words, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. So let's begin to look at these things. He begins in verse 29 with unwholesome words. Your version may actually say corrupt communication. We are not to speak unwholesome words. We are not to speak this way. And you say, well, what are unwholesome words? Well, again, the other version kind of gives you a deeper understanding, corrupt communication. But let me tell you what the Greek is talking about here. The word for unwholesome or corrupt is speaking of rank, foul, putrid, rotten, worthless, disgusting words. It's talking about your speech. In fact, the word was originally used of rotten fruit and rotten vegetables that would spoil. I mean, if it's rotten, it's spoiled. So the unwholesome talk, it belongs into the category of rotten fruit or decaying trees or spoiled fish. And in the immediate context, these rotten words are those which do not build up. So it would be any kind of speech that doesn't build up. It doesn't help or be beneficial to one another. Proverbs 4.24 says, Put away from you a perverse mouth and put devious lips far from you. We shouldn't be known for vulgarity. No pastor should have a label, the cussing pastor. 
And I'll just tell you that some of the stuff that I read that he was saying, he was dropping some of the same kind of bad language that you hear in the world. In fact, what you hear on TV now. There used to be a, an earlier day when there was no bad language on TV. You remember that? And then when it started coming in, it just came in with one or two words there. And now it's wide open. I mean, we're hearing some of the worst language ever on the television set. And again, that which was not characterized in earlier days. We shouldn't have conversation that's filthy. We shouldn't have conversation that's suggestive. We shouldn't have off-color jokes or profanity or dirty stories. We shouldn't have conversation that's frivolous and empty and idle and worthless. It shouldn't be obscene language. Because that is a decay-spreading conversation that runs others down and delights in their weaknesses. You look at chapter 5. He says in verse 4, There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting. Shouldn't have any of this coming out of our mouths. What should be coming out of our mouths is what he says next. But the giving of thanks. A thankful heart to God over the abundance of blessings he's given to us. So we have to abandon this kind of language. He says, do not let this be part of your life. Stop it. Just stop doing it. Jesus tells us in Matthew 15, 18 and following that the things that proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart. And those defile the man. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. So when you give in to that, that's coming from your heart. And I love what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, if you change the heart, you actually change the speech. I agree. When I was on that loading dock, working really hard on cleaning up my language, the only way I knew how to do this was to read the Scriptures and memorize the Scriptures. I had to reprogram the way I thought and the way I talked. And so on my breaks, I would sit there on a stack of pallets and I'd pull out a little pocket Bible I had and I would read through some of these passages that spoke specifically about my mouth. And I would memorize some of these passages so that when I had the urge to talk like that, after a while, those verses would come to your mind. I mean, that's the way of escape 1 Corinthians 10, 13 talks about. God always uses His Word to provide that way out. And so if, if you're struggling with something in your life, let's just say what we're talking about with your mouth, then you need to be memorizing scriptures that talk about your mouth and the kind of conversations you should be having. That's what you should be occupying yourself with as you're in the scriptures, on top of your daily reading of the scriptures. Over in Colossians 3.8, Paul put it this way, put them all aside, 
And he mentions abusive speech from your mouth. So we're not to speak any unwholesome words. They should not proceed from our mouths. But in the middle of the verse, he says, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. We have to speak words that edify, words that build up, words that are helpful, words that are gracious to one another. And I'll tell you, you know, we sometimes know, especially in our marriages, and the longer that we're married, the more we know this, we know what will bring out the worst in our spouse. Because we know our spouse, right? Same with our kids. We know what will bring out the worst in them. And sometimes we may get so frustrated at our spouse, or so frustrated at our kids, and then we just open up our mouth and all that corruption comes out. And that's what we have to stop. That's what you have to put the muzzle on. Because I'll tell you what, sometimes words are so cutting and that we can hurt each other so much with our tongue. As I told you last week, James 3 says, the tongue is set on fire by hell. And it can't be tamed. But it can be controlled by the Spirit. So just as the former manner of life, and you spoke that way all the time, now you're in Christ, you have the new self, you have the Holy Spirit of God, you have the Word of God, you have everything that you need to live the new life. You lack nothing. You have everything that's been given to you that pertains to life and godliness. You lack nothing. So our speech should build up. It needs to be helpful. It needs to be constructive. It needs to be encouraging. It needs to be instructive. It needs to be uplifting. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.14 not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Sometimes we get into some conversations that are just totally frivolous, not even worth having. He said in Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You want when you respond in situations that just like salt, salt permeates, salt flavors. And, of course, too much salt, it becomes bitter, right? I use a no salt of my blood pressure and sometimes I have trouble getting too much on there and it's nasty <laughs> but just think of that about your words sometimes you can over talk you're saying too much you need to be quiet again put your hand over your mouth muzzle your tongue and if it, if it means that you need to just kind of separate from the situation for a few moments do that. But don't leave the situation like it is. Come back. Make it right. I'll tell you, words mean things today. Ever since 9-11, words mean things, don't they? I know the young kids don't know a whole lot about 9-11 other than what we've told them as parents and maybe things they've learned in other places, but... 
I'll tell you right now, if you get on a plane and you hand the flight attendant a note that says, take me somewhere else other than this plane's going, you know what? They're going to have an air marshal right there at your seat in a couple seconds. Because they take this seriously now. After the loss of life that occurred from the terrorists that attacked our country, you take it seriously now, don't we? Words mean something. You walk up to the teller at the bank and you slide a note in there that's uh, indicating you're robbing this bank. You think they're going to take that seriously? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the same is true in other situations. I mean, I like to take people at their word. I want people to be honest up front. I want them to have integrity. So we have to speak appropriate words. Paul continues by telling them to speak according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. So that tells us we have to choose our words carefully. I love what Ecclesiastes 12.10 says. It says that the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. He sought after that. He planned on that. Proverbs 25.11 says, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. You know what it's like when you answer a situation and you didn't mess it up. <laughs> you didn't put you in that conversation. It was really by the Spirit of God, by what you shared. And what you said were apt words. They were like apples of gold and settings of silver. Or like Proverbs 15, 23, a man has joy in an apt answer. And how delightful is a timely word. I, I've done that. You've done that. And sometimes I'll look back and I go, wow, that had to be the Lord to do that. I didn't think about something like this prior to this conversation. Most of us don't. We just react. But we shouldn't just react. We should think about what we're saying before we say it. Especially if it's to a loved one. But to anyone, for that matter, I mean, when I think about my family, I think about people I meet, I want to make sure that what I'm saying is going to be helpful because I'm hoping that in my conversation right here, I want to be able to share the gospel with this person. And I don't want to undermine that opportunity because I can't control my tongue. Proverbs 24, 26 says, He kisses the lips who gives a right answer. So our words have to be careful. Our words also have to be gracious. This is how Jesus spoke. When he was in Nazareth, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. We're told he read from Isaiah 61, 1 after he finished reading. He said this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And Luke 4.22 says, And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And then they took offense at him. But we should be following his example. I mean, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, right? When they threatened, he didn't other threats. 
Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 10:12, words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. We all want to be wise people, right? We want to have the wisdom of God. We want to have the fear of God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And so when we have those gracious words that come across our lips, we have the right answer at the right time, an apt answer at the right time. And we can rejoice in that. We can have joy in that because we didn't mess up the situation by saying something stupid or dumb or offensive. In Proverbs 22.11 it says, He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. So we have to put aside unwholesome words. We have to speak to the need of the moment. The words that should come from our lips should be edifying. They should build up. They should be gracious, thought out, timely words. Words that reflect a heart of wisdom from Scripture. And if you look at verse 30, it tells us right here that when we speak unwholesome words, we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. That's your context. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you're speaking with foul language... You are grieving the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is not producing that in your life. That's you. That's your flesh. God does not want us to follow after the flesh. He wants us to follow after the Holy Spirit. The word grieve here, it means to cause sorrow. It's used in the present tense, which means it's a continual sorrow. Every time we talk like this, we are continually grieving the Spirit of God. And when he says, let us not do this or do not, that's a command. Don't grieve the Spirit. The Spirit who makes men attest to the truth is put to shame. When we speak unwholesome words or when we lie or when we have unrighteous anger, in other words, when we have foul mouths. I had two occasions in the last year of two different believers, professing believers, and I believe they are believers, but they had bad mouths. And I remember the first time it happened, and it kind of took me back. I did not expect that. But I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, I did speak up. And I was gracious as I could be. And I said, you really, really need to clean up that mouth. You'll never reach anybody for Christ talking like that. In fact, you're turning them away. And unbelievers already have every reason in the world why they don't want to follow your God, right? Why they don't want to come to Christ. They love their sin and all you're doing is you're showing them that there is nothing different between you and them. We grieve the Holy Spirit with sinful words and sinful deeds. And we have to remember that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own, you have been bought with a price, therefore you are to glorify God in your body. 
And I know that we go through days where we just don't feel good. I don't feel good either. I'm tired all the time. I'm stressed all the time. I'm dealing with heart disease and other issues. I just do not feel good. But you know what? I can glorify God in that. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 that this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him, to humble him because of the abundance of revelations that he had received, he prayed three times that God would remove it. And what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Paul, I'm not removing it. And sometimes that's the way it is with all of us too. There's some things in our life he does not remove. When I was studying Mark, one of the things I was picking up on is that we're not promised a healing. Now, God does heal. We believe that, don't we? I believe that. And I pray that. I've been praying a lot this week and last week and the week before and and I believe that I've had some improvements in some things I was dealing with this past week. But sometimes he leaves it for an extended period of time. See, the thing is, is that we, we have these fallen bodies. These bodies are encased with sin. And sin brings about disease and sicknesses and all of those things that are a result of the fall. Before the fall, none of that was there. But after Adam and Eve fell there in Genesis chapter 3, all of this was introduced. And so everything that you and I deal with, all these ailments, all these pains, all these sufferings, and all these physical issues that we deal with, that's part of the fall. And one thing you can look to rejoice in is that you won't have it in heaven. In fact, many times it just makes heaven more desirable, right? <laughs> more precious, right? Just to get out of this vile body. If it's not the suffering that you have in your physical body by different sicknesses or diseases or ailments or whatever, it's just to get rid of this body of sin and not ever have to deal with it again. And in heaven, you won't deal with it. It's gone. Let's go right now, okay? We have to make sure that we're not grieving the Spirit of God. And we have to remember that all sin brings grief to God. And the Spirit of God has sealed us for the day of redemption. And that takes us back to chapter 1 of Ephesians because he says in verse 13, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed... You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. When you believed in Christ, you were given the Spirit of God. You were sealed with the Spirit of God and He's given to you as a pledge. The word pledge is Erebon. Erebon means an engagement ring. What does that mean? Well, when I gave my wife... Well, before we were married, I gave her a ring, asked her to marry me. Well, I asked her to marry me, and then I gave her the ring. Let's get the order right. I was pledging to her with the ring that I was following through on what I was asking her, that I wanted to marry her. I wanted her to be my wife. I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. By the way, I'm happy to announce in my own heart 
that coming up on May 7th will be our 35th anniversary. And it's hard to believe we've been married for 35 years. It doesn't seem like it's been that long. But I praise God for her. We've been sealed with the Spirit of God. As I said a moment ago, you have Him in you. He's with you forever, permanently. And therefore, you can. You hear me? You can do what Paul is saying here. You can do what the Spirit of God is saying right here in Ephesians 4. You can do this. Look at what he says in verse 31. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. See, it's not just lying and unrighteous anger and stealing and unwholesome words, but also bitterness. Don't be bitter. Bitterness is the temper which cherishes resentful feelings. When you're resentful to another person, and you become bitter. Fritz Reinecker, he says, this is a figurative term denoting that fretted and irritable state of mind that keeps a man in perpetual animosity, that inclines him to harsh and uncharitable opinions of men and things, that makes him sour, crabby, and repulsive in his general demeanor, that brings a scowl over his face and infuses venom into the words of his tongue. It's a feeling of animosity or spite. And it's nearly always in the New Testament connected with our speech. Even David said in Psalm 64, the first three verses, he said, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsels of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aim bitter speech as like an arrow. Protect me from that, he's praying. The Greeks define this word as a long-standing resentment. It's that spirit which refuses to be reconciled. Some describe it as a smoldering resentment, a brooding grudge. It's filled with attitude or the spirit of irritability that keeps a person in that sour, venomous, crabby attitude. Somebody does something we do not like, so we harbor ill will against them. Charles Hodge said the word bitterness in its figurative sense means what is corroding like grief or anything that sets on or which acts on the mind as poison does on the body or on the minds of others as venom does on their bodies. The venom of the serpent lies harmless in his fang, but all evil feelings are poison to the subject of them as well as being venom to their object. The command, therefore, to lay aside all bitterness is a command to lay aside everything that corrodes our own minds or wounds the feelings of others. Can I say that again? Just that last part? He says, The command, therefore, to lay aside 
All bitterness is a command to lay aside everything which corrodes our own minds or wounds the feelings of others. It's interesting that this word bitterness, it only occurs four times in the New Testament. We find it over in Acts 8, where Peter confronts Simon after he tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. So Simon says in verse 20, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. That's the first place it's used. Second place it's used in Romans 3.14, where Paul describes both Jews and Greeks under sin as being without righteousness and understanding. They've turned aside. They become useless. They're without goodness. Their tongue is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asses is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And the third place it's used is in Hebrews. Chapter 12, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Do you see what it does? It causes trouble when you're bitter. Another form of this word is found over in James 3.11. Speaking of undrinkable water, in Matthew 26, 75, it speaks of Peter weeping bitterly after he denied the Lord. But the fourth use of the term is where we're looking at it right now in Ephesians 4.31. See, when you're bitter, you don't want to reconcile. That's the last thing on your mind when you have bitterness in your heart. Instead, you're resentful, you have harsh feelings, you have a bitter frame of mind, you're unwilling to forgive. Jay Adams says, a person who has a heart that is filled with vengeance and bitterness or resentment isn't ready for forgiveness because he's holding on to these sins, refusing to confess and forsake them. That's why you have to let every form of irritability, every inward resentment, Every resentful disposition against others and hardness of spirit be put away from you. And forgiveness is the only positive element that can overcome bitterness. You have to forgive. Look at verse 32 for just a second. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. But wait a minute, you don't understand what they've done to me. Well, what did we do to Christ? We were just as guilty of Him being crucified, even though we weren't there, because it's our sin that nailed Him to that tree. Linsky gives us some help right here. Linsky says, the moment a man wrongs me, I must forgive him. Then my soul is free. If I hold the wrong against him, I sin against God and against him and jeopardize my forgiveness with God. Whether the man repents, makes amends, asks my pardon or not, makes no difference. 
I have instantly forgiven him. He must face God with the wrong he has done, but that is his affair and God's and not mine. Save that in the case he is a brother. I should help him according to Matthew 18, 15. But whether this succeeds or not, and before this even begins, I must forgive him. You start right there. That person wrongs you, immediately you forgive them. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I said on one occasion that I forgive this person for what they did, but I also said I have to deal with the sting of it right now. Because it hurt. John MacArthur, in his book, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness, he says that forgiveness involves a deliberate refusal to hold the guilt over the head of the offender. It means ending the bitterness, laying aside anger, refusing to dwell on the offense that has been forgiven. It is a complete letting go of any thought of retaliation or reprisal. It is, as nearly as possible, the human equivalent of what God promises to remember the sins no more. Bitter emotions tell us to dwell on an offense. In contrast, forgiveness is a voluntary, rational decision to set the offense aside and desire only the best for the offender. Did you know that the word forgiveness means to release? So when you forgive someone who offends you, someone who hurts you, you're releasing them from any obligation to make it right. (coughs) So we have to let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth because that grieves the Holy Spirit. We have to let all bitterness be put away from us because that also grieves the Holy Spirit. But then he mentions wrath and anger. Wrath and anger. Robert Jones, in his book, Uprooting Anger, he wrote this. Anger is a universal problem prevalent in every culture, experienced by every generation. No one is isolated from its presence or immune from its poison. It permeates each person and spoils our most intimate relationships. Anger is a given part of our fallen human fabric. Sadly, this is true even in our Christian homes and churches. So between wrath and anger, there's really little difference except that the former is talking about power and the latter is talking about the act. So wrath would be the act. The Stoics said that wrath was an initial explosion of hot temper. This would be rage. This would be the passion of the moment, which would be displayed by temper tantrums, which is what we usually see in little children. But you know what? You've heard of road rage? Somebody cuts somebody off, and boy, they are filled with rage, and all they want to do is hurt that person who did that. And unfortunately, what's happening in many situations is the one in rage takes off after the person who did that and fires a gun in their car. I just read about that just recently. You can't read the news today without seeing rage. 
without seeing these types of behavior. You know, our Constitution allows us to do peaceful protest, right? It never allows us to do protests where it's the destruction of property and life. But what do we see going on? Black Lives Matter, Antifa. We've got lawmakers out there that are supposed to be upholding the laws and the Constitution out there encouraging it. We have somebody running for mayor, the Democrat running for mayor, for our city, coming up in May, that says, I've been to all the Black Lives Matters protests in support of what they're doing. Nobody in their right mind should vote for somebody like that and have them in a place of leadership and responsibility that's going to affect all of our lives. And I think one of the stupidest things I've ever heard is to defund the police. Guys, we, we can't afford private protection, can we? Now, I can go buy a gun, but that's not all that I need. I mean, I respect these people in authority. Romans 13 calls them God's ministers. They don't bear the sword in vain. They're there to punish evildoers. We need them. That's what keeps order in society. But when you remove it, what do you got? Chaos, anarchy. You have wrath and anger. William Barclay said the Greeks defined the word wrath is the word thumos as the kind of anger which is like the flame which comes from straw. It quickly blazes up and just as quickly subsides. It's explosive. Comes up, then it stops. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's translated as fury in Genesis 27:44. In Exodus 11:8, it's translated hot anger. In Proverbs 6.34, it's translated enrages. In the New Testament, it's also translated as rage in Luke 4.28 and as outburst of anger in Galatians 5.20. That's wrath. The second word, anger, it's, it's more of a settled or abiding condition of the mind. It, it frequently has a view of taking revenge. So the one is the act and the other is the attitude. And the word that's used here is the word orge. Orge is less sudden in its rise like the other word, thumos, but it's actually more lasting in nature. It's more internal. It has a deep hostility, a gnawing hostility. And the word is used in chapter 4, verse 26, of legitimate anger. You remember righteous indignation that we talked about last week? But Vincent says what is commanded in verse 26 is here forbidden because viewed simply on the side of human passion. And James says in James 1, 19 and 20 that this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That's unrighteous anger. Well... He also mentions another one in verse 31. It's the word clamor. Some translations have brawling. This is the Greek word that means to shout out in anger. 
In fact, the word itself is the outcry of strife, which is out of control. It's violent outburst coming from a person who has completely lost his temper. He begins to yell at others. William McDonald says it also includes angry bickering and shouting down opponents. That kind of behavior is usually characteristic of a mob or an assembly that covers up any kind of sober attitudes. We see it in Luke 23, 23, where the crowds were insistent with loud voices asking that Jesus be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. Or it's used in Acts 19, where the Ephesians, after hearing from the silversmith named Demetrius, he said that they were in danger of their trade coming to disrepute because of the message Paul was preaching, and Acts 19.28 says, When they heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began to cry out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, when you act like this, the proverb says, You are a fool. Proverbs 29.9, When a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs. Ha, ha, ha. See how come these are so destructive? Again, this is the old man. You don't want to feed this. You want to kill it. Well, there's another one, and it's slander. Slander. That's the Greek word blasphemia, where we get the word blaspheme. It means to speak against. When you're speaking against God, it's blaspheming God. When you're speaking against man, it's reviling and cursing. It includes all those obscene words that we were talking about as unwholesome words a while ago. You know, it's amazing. When sometimes when people get mad, they lose everything. And they have all kind of rage come out of their mouth, all kind of filthy talk come out of their mouth. They, they have no control, no self-control. They just cut it out. They let it loose. And they say, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. How dare you do that to me? And then they just, all this venom comes out of their mouth. We've experienced it. Some of us maybe even done it. Now, slander takes on many forms. You know that, right? Jerry Bridges, he says, closely related to the sin of, sin of gossip is the sin of slander. Slander is making a false statement or misrepresentation about another person that defames or damages the person's reputation. And he asked this question, do Christians slander? What's the answer? <laughs> yes, unfortunately. And then he says, we slander when we ascribe wrong motives to people. Even though we can't see their heart or know their particular circumstances, we slander when we say another believer is not committed when he or she does not practice the same spiritual disciplines we do or engage in the same Christian activities we engage in. We slander when we misrepresent another person's position on a subject without first determining what that person's position is. 
We slander when we blow out of proportion another person's sins and make that person appear to be more sinful than he or she really is. You could read my notes. I wrote right next to it real big. Wow. How many of us have been guilty of that? The idea of not slandering, the command to not slander, appears very early in the Bible, all the way back in the Old Testament. Like Leviticus 19.16, where it says, You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. It's a very serious sin, just like all these other ones are. God says in Psalm 101, verse 5, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor... Him I will destroy. Proverbs 6 tells us that this is one of the six things God hates. Yes, seven are an abomination. It says in 619, the one who spreads strife among believers. So if you're one who spreads slander, guess what? The Bible also calls you a fool. Proverbs 10, 18, he who spreads slander is a fool. But it also says if you can control slander, then all contention will stop. Proverbs 26, 20, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and there, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. See, that's what a slander does. It goes around and whispers about other people. Charles Spurgeon said, Do not be ready to receive such reports. There is as much wickedness in believing a lie as in telling it if we were always ready to believe it. There would be no slanderers if there were no receivers and believers of slander. For when there is no demand for an article, there is no producers of it. And if we will not believe evil reports, the tellbearer will be discouraged and leave off his evil trade. Don't be a bucket for his words or her words. The unfortunate part is, is somebody says something to us, and they say, "Do you hear? Did you hear about so and so?" Oh wow, our ears perk up. What? What? Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong because what if something bad happened to somebody and you didn't know about it? But in the next few words, you're going to know something. And if it's words of slander, stop it right then. So I'm sorry, I can't hear this. Reverse it. Say to that person, have you talked to this person about what you're telling me? Because Matthew 18, 15 says you've got to go to them privately and talk to them. Most situations render the answer to be no. Because the church does not practice church discipline. It allows the sin of the people just to continue. And the church is unholy. There are many people that are guilty of these things that I have been going through. And others in the church know it, but they'll never say anything. That's wrong. Part of being holy, as God is holy, is that we have to help each other. 
Sometimes we fall into sin. We get caught up into something. We get the blinders from the sin on our eyes. We can't always see how devastating that this is. And if you have a brother or sister that can come along and admonish you with the scriptures and point some of these things out to you, that is helpful. That's beneficial. But I would have to also say that the person pointing it out has to make sure that when they come to you and talk to you that they're very careful as they do it. Also looking at their own selves, knowing that they too could be on the other side receiving this type of confrontation. Well, there's one more. He says to put all that away along with all malice. And malice is a general term for evil. It's the root of all these vices. The attitude of malice And even the action of it, it has one intention, and that is to harm. John Calvin says that the correction of all the rest will be greatly aided by the removal of malice. 1 Peter 2.1, in order for us to desire the Word of God, we've got to put away from us all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, Envy and all slander. John MacArthur again says, These particular sins involve conflict between person and person, believer and unbeliever, and worse still, between believer and believer. These are the sins that break fellowship and destroy relationships, that weaken the church and mar its testimony before the world. When an unbeliever sees Christians acting just like the rest of society, the church is blemished in his eyes and he is confirmed still further in resisting the claims of the gospel. That brings me right back to where we started. If we're living an ungodly life, we have ungodly language, ungodly deeds, we've undermined the gospel. We have no platform to talk about the gospel to anybody because we are demonstrating to these people that need to hear the gospel that we're no different. We haven't changed. And if there is no change, there is no salvation. Because salvation is a transformation of the heart. And it's instant God might leave some things in your life that He wants you to deal with in your sanctification. But I'll tell you what, going back to Mark Driscoll and his confession talking about sanctifying grace, if he keeps doing this over and over and over and over, there is no sanctification here. All he's doing is giving into the flesh. I, I worked with a guy one time in a church plant, and he was into this shock and awe. He loved to shock people with his words. And it became so bad that we had to remove him from ministry. He told me one day, he said, I can't wait to be full-time in ministry so I can go around and confront everybody's sin. I was shocked. I was thinking to myself, you'll never be full-time in ministry if I have anything to do with it. I don't support that at all. All that's going to do is divide the fellowship. All that's going to do is bring about division and strife and contention. A lot of these things I'm sitting here talking about. That's not building up people. That's not helping people. 
God gives in His Word how we are to address these issues in each other's lives when we see it. And that's the Matthew 18 I was referring to. I want to bring, bring this to a close. <coughs> Sorry. And I want to close with something Linsky says again. He says, Wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, they form a climax. First, bitterness is felt in the heart. The next step is exasperation, which is still in the heart, although hard to be restrained. The third step is anger, which blazes forth. The fourth is yelling, which is a violent outburst of words. The fifth is a cursing in words of blasphemy against the opponent. And beloved, as long as these persist, there's no decreasing of sin in your life, only an increase. And I'll take you back to Colossians 3, 5. I love the King James version of that verse, which says, mortify the deeds of your body. The word mortify means put to death. Put it to death. Kill this in your life. Don't give yourself back to the former manner of life because you laid aside the old self. That old self is corrupt. It lives in accordance to lust of deceit. You have to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You have to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In essence, you have to be filled with the Spirit. Reckon yourself, according to Romans 6.11, as dead to sin. And take lying and anger and stealing and unwholesome words and bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. Put that all away from you once and for all. All sin. Colossians 3.8 says... But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Put on the new self. You're a new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Well, I hope that you are doing this and that you're giving the glory and praise to God. If you're here today without Christ... The Bible says, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You need to repent and turn your life over to Christ, and he will save you. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time we've had in your word today. We praise your holy and righteous name. Help us to be kind of children 
that we are supposed to be according to your word. Help us to walk in dependence on the Spirit. Help us not to give in to the old life. Help us to reckon it as being dead. Lord, open up the hearts of all of us in here to your word, and especially those who have never repented and come to Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.